friends and welcome to another edition of Dan and Benny in the Ring. I'm Dan Spasciano joined as always by the BS Express himself, Benny Scala. Benny, how you doing, buddy? Dan, life is good. It's Tuesday night. We're going to talk about wrestling for the next hour. We have a great guest. Absolutely. Before we get to that, though, we have a, uh, you know, with, with uh, he, we've seen a lot of the updates from his, from his school. We got a spot, shout out to our sponsor. You want to? Uh... With pleasure. Uh, Dan and Benny in the Ring is brought to you by Boogie's Wrestling Camp, founded in 1992 by wrestling legend Jimmy Valiant and his beautiful wife Angel. BWC is situated in majestic, scenic Shawsville, Virginia. Whether you want to be a wrestler, manager, or an escort valet, BWC is the place to be. At BWC, you'll receive the best possible training from Jimmy and his amazing staff. You'll learn holes, bumps, psychology, and promos. And the cost is just $250 down and $20 per session, Boogie's Wrestling Camp has turned out 29 graduating classes, and the most notable alumnus being the AEW world champion, Hangman Adam Page. When you join BWC, you're not just joining a wrestling school. You become a part of the family. Interested? Visit jimmyvaliant.weebly.com for more information on Boogie's Wrestling Camp. BWC, the ring of dreams, where the dream becomes reality. And tell them Dan and Benny sent you. Well said, Benny. And we we love Boogie and everybody, uh, our extended family out there, Honored to still be a part of their their circle. And, of course, like you said, Pangman Adam Page, AEW champion, still best match of all of last year was his title defense against Brian Danielson. So that is a testament to all the training he received from Boogie and the like. You know, before we got to the shout-out, though, you said we have an amazing guest, Benny, on the show. We love stories. We love to talk to people. And we love the first-person narratives. They, they tell us about their lives. But we've also had a lot of fun with third-person interviews. People tell us stories, uh, you know, people they worked with, people they knew. And we've had some really good stories in the past about family. And if there's one thing wrestling, it, it, more than any, any other organization out there, it's always about family. And so why don't you tell everybody who we got on the line with us? Because we, we have some, some very interesting stories that are going to come from this. Absolutely. Well, our very special guest is the daughter of a true wrestling legend, uh, territory legend. Wherever he went, uh, gold seemed to follow him. He picked up numerous, not only cha- uh, tag team championships, but um, but singles championships all over the United States. He wrestled in Japan, wrestled in many of the major territories. Uh, we're talking about uh, Kurt Von Hess, and we have his daughter, Paige Von Hess Sutherland. Paige, welcome to Dan and Benny in the Ring. Thank you much, very much for having me. I'm glad to be here. You know, before we got on the air, Paige, you said how much you talked about how much you love telling stories about your father and everything there. We always start whenever we have guests on with the obvious question about where the bug, when the bug bit you, when it happened. With such yeah. a unique past to your to your father, when when did he get into it what what did he ever tell the story about where he got into wrestling when did he see it hear it and go that's what I'm going to do uh, actually the story is that um it, it, my dad is from Hamilton Ontario and during that time uh, a lot of wrestlers were pumping out of here and they called this place the factory 159 wrestlers came out of here oh wow and they were trained very well in the city by three major uh trainers 
So my dad, uh, they didn't have gyms back then. This is 1965. Um, didn't have gyms. So they would go to community centers. Um, so they went to the Jewish community center in Hamilton. And my dad met uh, Dewey Robertson, missing link. Oh, yeah. And he is also from Hamilton, too. And um, Dewey and my dad uh, became friends through the gym and got talking. And Dewey said, hey, I know this guy. He's training for wrestlers because my dad had a job, um, several jobs. He just hated working for the man, I guess. (laughs) But uh, he was from a typewriter salesman to selling carpets. And uh, Orange Crush uh, distributorship he had as well. So um, he uh, ended up um, going with Dewey to meet up with a gentleman named Benny Lima, uh, who is one of these trainers from Hamilton. And uh, Dad and um, Dewey uh, simultaneously trained with Benny and uh, then got into the uh, uh, New York area and Hamilton area, Toronto. Paige, when he was younger, uh, was he a mm-hmm. fan? And if he was, who were his favorites? Who were his influences as a youth? Oh, yeah. yes, he loved uh, watching wrestling and, and got quite involved with it and when he was younger and his teens and, you know, Whipper Billy Watson, uh, Sweet Daddy Seeky, um, Lord Athel Layton um, were one of his big influences uh, that he just loved uh, that made him fall in love with wrestling. Did he get a lot of pushback when he decided to make that, you know, that his, his livelihood from his parents or any of his relatives? You know, it's funny you should say that. I was talking to his sister today, my aunt, and uh, she had mentioned that my grandparents, if anything, were just worried that he was going to get hurt. Um <laughs> Um, even though he's well-trained, you know, he, they still, you know, my grandmother was first time she saw him on television. Um, she had to leave the room because that's her son and she was afraid he was getting hurt. She didn't understand at the time the, the, the whole wrestling and how it worked. You mentioned he he was became a fan. He was in you know, his teens. That would have been 1950s. Uh, Canada, mm-hmm. I mean, just such a unique environment, Canadian wrestling. But one of the things in the 1950s, anywhere you went, was kayfabe. It was real. Everybody oh, yeah. protected the secret. We've heard so many in the business. And yeah. we were talking before, Benny and I were talking before the show, and he brought up uh, something I wanted to tie to touch on. In, in the 60s and 70s, uh, your dad was working for Pedro Martinez's, um, the, the NWF, the National Wrestling Federation. That's when, he, yeah. when he evolved and became you know, when, when, excuse me, um, when he, he became Kurt Von Hess, um, yeah. how, did, how did you go as, as a child of a wrestler who now has to, has a different persona that he has to keep in public? How did, how did you and your siblings, like, how did you, how did that be being the, the child of someone who's now a different person? It was weird. I t- I'll tell you what happened. Um, my dad had the, uh, the truck, uh, the orange crush, uh, business and um he came home in the truck one day and that's what i thought he did for a living i did had no clue prior to that that he i mean i was only four years old so that he was actually wrestling and during that time between 66 and when he turned into kurt von hess in 1970 he was big bill terry that was his that's his uh real name 
And um, he wrestled many years uh, through Hamilton, Toronto, uh, and New York. So he was even in there then. So um, we recently had Shane Russell, who is the son of Lance Russell, the legendary uh, Memphis announcer. Yes, yes. Yes. Lance Russell was an announcer for in Memphis for many, many years. I remember him well. One of the best. And so we asked Shane what it was like, uh, like when you went to school. um, Yes. What? What? Or or in the neighborhood, if you had kids your age, I'm sure this one of the subjects was your dad. And, and wrestling, how did that go? Like, what, what, you know, as far as in, with your classmates and with your neighbors? Uh, it could be tough um, from the very get-go. And my dad turned into Kurt Von Hess. Um, you know, everything evolved and changed. Um, our He turned into Kurt Von Hess in 1970. That, uh, 71, we moved to Calgary. And that was probably my first experience in school, um, having a, a dad who was a wrestler. And I was talked to by both my parents. They, they didn't talk about wrestling at home at all. They kept it out of the house. Uh, I only heard bits of whispers and phone calls and things like that. So um, when I'd go to school, they would somehow find out that my who my father was. And uh, it could be, a, you know, a... a some, there was a few bullying situations, um, you know, your dad sucks and, you know, he's a terrible wrestler and, and some pretty cruel things. And other people were more enamored by the fact that he was who he was. And, you know, I'm a daughter and, you know, same with my sister. She had the same thing. But it could be very um, uh, taxing on you at a young age when, you know, it's not we thought it was normal, but, you know, other people just thought it was odd and we're like circus folk you know kind of they they took their wrestling very serious in, in calgary oh my they? gosh yeah 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 did they ever like um it really upset my father that i was getting hassled at school because i was more the quiet one and my sister was more the outgoing and she could handle herself whereas i would was much more sensitive um you know it was, and it was very difficult because, you know, he'd be on TV that night and the next day I'd go into school and they say, oh, your dad lost. And, you know, I saw the match and it's like I didn't even get to see it myself because <laughs> we weren't allowed to really be involved with it that much, you know. You, you mentioned, obviously, talking about the evolution and the change going from uh, Bill Terry to Kurt Von Hess. Did, did your did father ever tell the story of how that came about like who who looked at your dad and said you know what you need to be a nazi like like how i mean it, it, it was one of the and i don't i don't mean that as a criticism because no I mean, not at all you know no, uh, yeah. side anecdote for our viewers when your father retired he was the last uh of that gimmick 1986 i believe that's correct he was the yeah. last and since then that's that's been an untouched gimmick so it was the kind of the last of the great territory mm-hmm. foreign heels. But yeah, I mean, I did he, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, it's, no go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> oh, no, I was, I was going to say, did, did he ever tell the story or, or did, did you ever hear about how that came about? Like what led to the creation of Kurt Von Hess? I asked him a long time ago, um, you know, and he was very uh, uh, careful how he would answer questions because right up until he passed away, he still was Cape babe. I'm not kidding. <laughs> 
he just believed in it and protected the business to the very end, even though it was exposed. Um, but um, he, um, I would say, um, back in the New York days, working for Pedro Morales, or Martinez, sorry, um, he uh, worked with Hans Schmidt. And Hans was a little older than my dad and um, dad wanted to get as much heat as possible. And he saw through Hans that, you know, he was quite successful of getting the heat in the crowd and, you know, and he just latched onto that persona and, and loved it. So I think Hans Schmidt was the one who really was the one who um, helped him with that. And Hans Mortier as well. Oh, well, now, you, now you, that's a blast from the past. Well, I, I started watching wrestling in 1968, and oh, Hans gosh. Mortier was a huge star in New York. Yeah. He was managed yeah. by uh, Wild Red Berry, and he'd left pretty much that year, but I, I remember him very well. That, that's, a, that's a big name. So I was going to ask yeah. you, uh, Paige, uh, did he start as a, as a babyface? Because... I looked on uh, WrestlingData.com and I saw that one of his first matches, at least that was recorded on WrestlingData.com, was against uh, Baron Mikel Cicluna, who's one of my favorites, okay. by the way, yeah, in, in yeah. Pittsburgh. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm thinking as Bill Terry, was he a babyface at that time? He was. Okay. Yes. Um, as far as I know, I don't think he turned. Um, I think one day he was Bill Terry and the next day he was Kurt Von Hass. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was as simple as that. They shaved his head. I cried like I cried. When did he, he did he mind that? That would kill me. He loved it. He, really? you know, just, <laughs> because you know what? In 1970, nobody shaved their head. You know, you didn't see men walking around with bald heads like that at his age. You know, <laughs> right? Just um, unusual. And uh, he got called out for a lot, and he wore a lot of hats. <laughs> so. <laughs> Yeah. Did he mind being a bit, did he mind being a heel or did he totally embrace it or. Do you know, what's funny. My father was, he, he, it was like um, when he walked into an arena or a gym or wherever he was working, um, Kurt Von Hess would be turned on when he came home. He was a completely different person, very gentle, kind, um, uh, quiet, um, very, very easygoing. And you would never know that given his uh, gimmick. Well, I'm curious because uh, obviously at the top of the hour, we uh, did our shout out to Boogie Wrestling Camp. Uh, Jimmy's been on the mm-hmm. show twice now, and he's told a story where when he, when the Valiant Brothers, when they were heels and when Jimmy, one of the best heels in the business at the time, how it was hard to be in public with his family because he had to stay in character and you got, you know, the, the crowd, like you said, the strangers that'd be all, you know, boo. And -hmm. did you ever have that problem trying to go out to go out to dinner in town or go to the store or whatever? And, and did people dealt with your father or or was that just something he just kind of. Yeah. You know, I I would say the, the worst probably was when we lived in Windsor and dad was working for Detroit for the chic. And, um, that's when, um, it was pretty bad. Uh, we were living in uh, the Tecumseh area and, uh, you know, a lot of times my dad would take us girls with him and he did a lot of errands during the day, you know, because he obviously didn't work during the day, 
but he'd take us along for the ride, you know, and go to the bank and go, you know, pick up a few things, whatever. And, um, the one day there was a crowd of kids there in the mall and they called him out and, you know, said, you suck. And, you know, and we were just, and my sister and I were just like, Hey, that's our dad. Like, why are you doing like, we still at that point did not understand. We knew we had to be quiet about wrestling, but we didn't understand. Like we're just out shopping, you know? And yeah, it was really bad. We had to leave. Um, he was pretty upset and um yeah they were just terrible and of course they run off you know because it's a group of kids so they right. all egged on each other you know and just but he would just give them the stare and you know he he wouldn't say anything he'd just give them the stare and they'd run I, i'm i'm thinking that you know when we talked to jimmy 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 turned heel and it was really bad for him but yeah, i'm thinking in your dad's case not only is he a heel but he's an mm-hmm. ethnic heel and I would ethnic, think that would make it a worse. lot worse. Would I would I be pretty much spot on with that? Yeah, you're pretty you're pretty spot on with that because you know we were harassed um, several times. I mean, we my dad wouldn't let us go to the matches very often, and it'd be a big treat if we got to go. And you know, one time in Cloverdale, BC, I was uh, we went to the matches, and a lot of times if he was in the ring we didn't didn't get to finish watching the match because we had to get to the car cuz he'd be running out to go like that like he sometimes he if if he had the family there that's what he would do it, otherwise he'd just stick in the in the change room or whatever the dressing room but uh he came out and he beat the heck out of uh Sika on Hawaii one of the um uh, wild Samoans yeah yes and um, the crowd came out and they were throwing pop and uh, garbage Jeez. at him. And then he jumped in the car and locked the doors. And then the, they crowded around and were shaking the car. And my sister and I were crying because we thought the car was going to turn over. And a few wrestlers came out along with the police and broke it up. But it was quite scary. It's tough to oh, say wow. that's the scariest moment i i faced and then after that he wouldn't let us go very often once in a while but yeah it was very that uh, you know that was really hard and calling him a nazi and you know i know he's portraying that but he didn't have nazi symbols on him he wasn't you know he had the german cross you know that sort of thing but mm-hmm. the if if you don't mind um looking up some stuff mm-hmm. he your father was was unique in that he was more of a and it was something uh, that you saw with a few of the evil foreign menaces back then. It, it's a, you didn't see the flag and the goose steps and, and the the hit. It was it mm-hmm. was the cross. It was the reference. They never straight out said this guy's a Nazi. They imply never. more of a German sympathizer character. Let the crowd decide that he was a Nazi. That's and, and I, I always thought that was just a creative way of getting around that. But speaking of Nazis. Mm-hmm. Benny and I reached out to you on the show when you commented. Uh, I'd made a post on the fan page. The WWE yes. recently came under fire because they were going to rename uh, Walter, the the NXT UK or well, former mm-hmm. NXT UK champion. They had tried to trademark the name Gunther Stark before someone pointed out Gunther Stark was a pretty high profile Nazi U boat captain. As a matter of fact, they mm-hmm. they said he was the first. His his page on on. Being a Nazi was the first thing that came up if you Googled Gunther Stark. And 
you, you talked about the, the the tasteful heel versus the, you know, like I said, where your, your father was kind of implied versus straight up, hey, we're going to name this guy after a Nazi. I mean, it's the difference yeah. between having a character named Adolf and a character named Adolf Hitler. Like, people get the difference. But what I wanted to ask, ask you thoughts on is back in the territory days, it was very common to have the foreign menace, the Russians, the Germans, the Japanese, the the Soviets, the you know the evil Eastern European, the vague you know Russian Bulgarian bloc villain. Whereas you know today in the more PC era, the ethnic heel is kind of not something that has the same oomph to it. And there's also been some high profile misses. Uh, Year, what about was it about 10 years ago, maybe more um, when the WWE had a character named Muhammad Hassan, who turned out to, you know, he was, uh, which oddly enough, he was played by an Italian. Um, but uh, I was curious what your thoughts are um, on the contra one on the controversy and two, if the ethnic heel like your father was, would ever even succeed in today's world? My thoughts on the WWE's uh, crack at uh, this German gimmick again, uh, and with reference back to uh, an actual person, I find offensive. And it sounds crazy coming from a daughter of a German heel, but it's a different world nowadays, and um, it wouldn't fly these days. And I just don't know why they would actually, you know, even think of something like that um, during these times. Um, during my dad's era and and previous, all of those German gimmicks were based on trying to get it was post-war. Uh, uh, post, excuse me, post World War II. So, a lot of the audience back then were like really needed that hatred and within them, you know, to in this character. Whereas nowadays, I don't think there's any like the world has changed so much, and I don't think that it, it was politically correct or you know fits in today's world. Like my dad wouldn't, his character would never make it today. Your dad actually, even though he has a mountain of tag team gold, he was actually a very good singles wrestler. I was doing some research before mm -hmm. the show, and you mentioned mm -hmm. uh, Afa, uh, one of the Samoans. He, uh, in singles matches, I checked, he's, he's defeated both Afa and Sika. He's got mm -hmm. victories over Antonio Inoki, uh, Giant Baba. Bobo mm -hmm. Brazil and John Tolos and Billy Robinson. Absolute every single one of those guys is an absolute legend. So I don't think he really gets the credit he deserves. And then I know he won the Texas Texas Brass Knuckles Championship. And then he mm -hmm. won the Stampede North America Championship, which is, you know, back in the territory days, was a very coveted uh singles championship. Um so that would have been under the guy, you know, the the uh, ownership of Stu Hart uh, Stampede. Do you have any, or did did your dad have any Stu Hart stories? Oh sure, yeah, yeah. My dad could do the best impersonation of his of his, his uh, <laughs> voice. It was the funniest thing I ever heard in my life. <laughs> Stu Hart is one of but the most. I think Stu Hart and Terry Funk are the two most imitated uh, personalities <laughs> in professional wrestling. Absolutely. 
Um, Dad went out there in September of 1970 and worked for Stu. Um, he was a champion pretty fast. I think it was November he became the champion, and he carried it right through till February. Um, and that's a long haul for a belt to carry. Like they didn't last. You, I did, I've looked on his record before, and it you know that's a long for a young guy. He just started. He was just starting out you know, as Kurt Von Hess and went out to Calgary on a whim. And uh, I do believe that uh, Stu did stretch him in the basement. In the dungeon? Yes. Yeah, he did with everyone. That is true. I, but I do I remember going up to the house uh, okay. when I was a Our kid because um, dad would go up and talk to him. Um and uh, I remember sitting in that long driveway and uh, that he, I couldn't believe that was actually someone's home. And, <laughs> and dad would go up and it was a very cold winter there. You think it was cold here. Um, it, oh boy, you touched your, your fingers are freezing in seconds. But uh, we drove up to the house and I can remember being up and looking in the window and I don't know which child it was but one of the children was sticking their tongue out at me and waving their fingers in their ears at me and I started doing it back and I I don't know which art it was but it was one of them and then I stopped and (laughs) my dad came out and I told him and he goes oh never mind and I guess Stu heard about it and he goes I'm sorry that one of my kids was harassing your kid (laughs) so it was quite funny but um, you know he was a good man to work for my dad respected him immensely. Um, that is uh, actually the territory where he met his uh, f- uh, future partner, uh, John Anson, who was a Carl von Hess or von Schott, sorry. And um, you know, from there, you know, he went to Montreal. So, but at that time in Calgary, he just loved working for Stu and just loved the way he, you know. And then that was really hard. To, a lot of road work there. You know, a lot of traveling. That that you know for for Stu to put the the belt, like you said, your dad was relatively young and young and inexperienced. But you know back then, a, 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 now belts are props; they just get thrown all over the place. But back then, in the territory days, a belt was it meant something. And for your you know for your dad to have gotten that belt from Stu Hart meant that Stu had all the faith in the world in him, and that your dad could draw money. Oh yeah, yeah. I get a big rivalry with uh, Carlos uh, Colon, and he was Belafonte at the time. Um, but they had a huge feud, and for Stu to give him that belt, uh, and he carried it right through Christmas into February. Uh, and I think uh, is it Tor Kamada who took it off him? But um, yeah, he uh, he loved working for him, and uh, was very devoted to him. You know. Great man to work for. You know, talking about working for a legend, earlier in the interview, you mentioned your father's success in Detroit, working for the Sheik, the original Sheik, Ed Farad. And I was wondering, because you you would have traveled around a lot and been around at that time. Do you have any, because that's a name that comes up a lot in this show and with everything he's, he revolutionized in the business. And I was wondering if if you have any thoughts or or stories you could share about the original Sheik. Well, the original Sheik, um, I'll tell you a little story. Uh, Dad and uh, my my father and um, Carl Von Schatz went to Montreal after Calgary. 
And um, they're a big draw there, too. Uh, huge. Um, they really create a lot of heat there. Uh, big crowds. And they were working for the Rougeau brothers. And um, there was a big event. Uh, I'm, I think it was July of 72 um, at Jari Park in Montreal. And the week before the Rolling Stones played. And this wrestling show had a high, um, higher uh, crowd uh, number than the Rolling Stones. I think oh, it wow. was uh, 29,000. The Rolling Stones had 27,000. Wow. So during that evening, um, the main event was the Sheik. And uh, I'm, I'm not going to say it was Boba Brazil, but <laughs> everybody does. But uh, um thinking of how many matches they had together. Um, but uh, anyway, whoever he was wrestling, um, the Sheik started a riot. And uh, Dad and uh, Carl were had already wrestled in a six-man tag. And um, they were the second main event. And so when the Sheik went in and he did his thing, the crowd went crazy to the point where Dad and Carl were sent out by the Rougeau brothers to grab um, the Sheik and bring him back into the dressing room. And this is, I'll tell you, you know, who told me this story was actually John Anson himself, uh, Carl. And um, so they brought him back to the dressing room and he was roughed up and whatever. And he said to my dad and uh, Carl, you know what? He says, you guys are great tonight. You know, I really appreciate you helping me out. And, you know, I, you know, you pretty much saved my life is what John said. But um, anyway, he says, I want you to come to Detroit. And a few weeks later, they were in Detroit. But uh, another story I have for the Sheik is, uh, like I say, my dad took me on, uh, you know, errands and things. And uh, the only time I saw him was, I think it was the parking lot of Cobo Hall. And um, dad was picking up uh, some money or or they had to talk to him or something. And I saw him and he just peeked his head in the window. And he said to me, he says, you look just like your dad. You have his smile. And he said, pretty little girl. And that's all he said to me. Nice. So um, we're going to go back to Jimmy Valiant for a second. When he when he broke into business, he got he was initially in the Midwest with uh, Dick the Bruiser, and then he got a call from Bill Watts. So he packed up his family, moves down to um, I think Tulsa, I believe, somewhere in Oklahoma. Um, I had, believe it I is believe Tulsa. Yes. Two young daughters, I think, or maybe he had three by then. You know, two or three months later, he gets a call from Fritz von Erich. And now he's packing up again and he's moving to Dallas. And I think mm-hmm. maybe like three or four months later, he gets a call from Vince McMahon. And now he's packing up the family. He didn't move to New York, but I think he moved to uh, Willingboro, New Jersey. I think he actually rented his house from uh, Gorilla Monsoon. But did is that what you guys did or did you guys pretty much stay in Ontario? Well, you said you did move to uh, to Calgary, oh, but no. did you move oh, all over gosh. the place? Or? We sure did. Calgary was just the beginning. Um, we moved 17 times in 10 years. Wow. Jesus. Yeah. We went from, uh, Washington state, British Columbia, Montreal, 
um, down in the ten- Tennessee and Knoxville, Nashville, uh, Pensacola, Florida, um, all the major territories. The only territory my dad didn't really get into was the AWA. But he did work for, for Bill Watts, too. Yeah, you, you mentioned um, when, we, when we talked about the past guests, his time in Memphis. That's interesting in uh, that we talk about the character changes. You know, he teamed up with uh, Randy Colley, best known as Moondog Rex. Your, your father wrestled as Assassin number two. Uh, tag titles, him and Assassin one, you know, back when it was common to have multiple wrestlers with with numbered names. I was curious, uh, you talk, you, you mentioned shaving his head, some of the change in demeanor. Uh, what did your dad think about having to wrestle under a mask? He loved it. He loved it, and I'll tell you why. Because uh, he had anonymity for the first time in his career. Because he grew his hair in. And uh, took the goatee and mustache off. Nobody knew who he was. And he loved it. He loved the quiet. You know, he loved the peacefulness of it because he did a lot of times he didn't get a lot of peace, you know, from uh, the fans. Whereas he was undercover and uh, we lived in Nashville at the time and uh, him and Randy uh, were great partners together and uh, worked that territory, I tell you. And, you know, they got very confused. They always get confused with the other assassins, but you can always tell by the yellow spat boots. If it's, they have the yellow spat boots on, it's Randy and my dad. Did he have a favorite territory where, you know, one that was more travel friendly? Because I know that I, I, I know that uh, Calgary was was murder as far as travel. And so was uh, oh, yes. so was Mid-South. Was there a more mm-hmm. travel friendly uh, territory that he liked being in where he could be home at night? Um, probably Detroit would be the the closest he would be to home um his favorite territory would probably be uh, gulf coast um you know pensacola area because he can go to louisiana he can go to mississippi it's very close in range and he could be home you know and not gone for five six days you know he could come back we he'd go over to new orleans and uh uh, Tupelo and, you know, all through there and Mobile and you know, all through Alabama as well. So, yeah, that was a good spot to be in right there, you know, for in Pensacola was a great central spot. And then, you know, you can go down into Tampa or Orlando, all that Miami, too. So. I had a question about the Orange Crush dealership. Actually, more, well, it's yeah. kind of a statement and then a question. So uh, you mentioned that he bought it from Wes Hutchins. And if I have my facts right, uh, when I started watching and wrestling in 1968, Wes Hutchins was actually in the WWWF. Um, and I remember vividly, if I have the same guy right, I'm, I'm almost positive I, I do, but uh, he wrestled against a man named the Kentucky Butcher, Virgil Butcher. And mm-hmm. he was pile driven and stretched mm-hmm. out of the ring. And I don't think he was ever seen again after that. Now, I know that he was, was he Reginald Love of the Love Brothers? He was Hartford. Hartford, I'm sorry. Um, yes. And that's he was who Hartford your dad Love. bought the dealership from, correct? That is correct. And he's also, a, well, Wes was a uh, from uh, Nova Scotia. 
and he's he lives there now um, in his retirement years. Um, but yes, he he was one of the love brothers with um, uh, Johnny Evans, Rotten Reggie. Okay. Now the other part yeah. of that though was that the Virgil Butcher was uh, his real name was John Quinn, and I believe your dad actually tagged up with him and won a couple of titles. Correct. That was the next thing I was going to say. If you want, the Kentucky Butcher was in fact John Quinn. And John um, and my dad um, were grew up about 40 miles away from each other when they were kids. And they didn't know each other. And then when they got into wrestling, um, they actually met in Hamilton um, at, uh, I believe, Jack Wentworth's gym, who was another trainer. And um, then he went out west, and uh, John did. And they ended up meeting up at the same time in Calgary and partnered. And then later on, they partnered in 77, I believe, in Japan. But very good friends. They just that was, really that was a man that he, he, I mean, I'm a 13-year-old kid watching, and he pretty much stretchered everyone. That was sure his did. thing, you know, the pile driver with the stretcher. And his manager was Bobby Davis, who was a, a, a wrestling legend. I think he left the WWF shortly after that as well. But John Quinter, the butcher, I mean, he one of, one of my most horrifying moments as a wrestling fan was. Uh, and of course, like he was wrestling Arnold Scullin, who was Bruno San Martino's manager. And mm-hmm. so he, he you know, the same thing, pile driver. And, you know, he, here comes the stretcher. And as Arnold Scullin is being carried out of the ring, Bobby Davis and the butcher both picked the stretcher up and he, you know, it, it, he looked like an airplane, Arnold Scullin flying out of the ring. And then uh, <laughs> Ray Morgan, the announcer the next week was giving the address of white plains hospital where to send cards and postcards. From <laughs> I remember this clear, clear as day. <clears throat> Excuse me. And, That's hilarious. But, but, and then of course, Bruno is enraged and don't mm-hmm. you know that they sold a garden out? I mean, and it's just amazing that this worked. So, you know, and then when, when John Quinn left, somebody else came in. I think uh, Bob Orton Sr. came in as Rocky Fitzpatrick. And it was the same formula. And they did this for years and years and years. But it's just a testament to how good these guys were at what they did and how people, how seriously people took it. It was taken very seriously. Um, you know, he, dad came home, like, I'll tell you one thing he, he, in Montreal, the fans could be quite brutal. They throw darts in the ring, rotten oh, tomatoes, rotten eggs, you know, whatever they could throw at, uh, them. They would put a baby in front of my dad as he was going after somebody to, so he would hit into them and then they would sue or try to, you know, oh, he hurt me. That's how bad it got. Like, they really, really were just rabid fans when it came to that. And there really wasn't much in the way of security back then, was there? No, there was police presence. If it was a big crowd, that's it. And mm. most of the security were the other wrestlers. <laughs> yeah. They, they'd go in and, you know, pull guys out and, and you know, de-escalate the situation. But there were some terrible riots and... Um, Akron was a big place for that. Oh, yeah. You, they, uh, you you hear all kinds of stories. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. Not at all. 
but yeah, Akron uh, was, uh, you know, blue collar working town and they took wrestling very seriously and uh, could be quite vicious and riotous. <laughs> That's something I'll need to get out <laughs> as fast as I could. Yeah, you hear all uh you hear all kinds of horror stories from some of your prominent heels of the territory days getting you know tires slashed and rental you know rental cars fans trying to follow them back to the hotel and you know you just I mean it, it's awful that that type of behavior towards really what amounts to a fictional character but it's also like Benny said it's a testament to how good people were when I'm here to, you know, or the, I'm here to wrestle and entertain, but I'm also here to get you to hate me. And I'm going to get you to hate me to the point where you literally want to hurt me physically. It's it, that, that type of energy just makes, made the wrestling back then. So, so unique to what we have today. I totally agree. And, you know, it's one thing my dad uh, prided himself on was the fact that he could do that and very well. And he knew exactly what to do. He just, you know, he'd be standing with the uh, tag rope in his hand and he'd find someone in the audience and just stare them down and make them cry. <laughs> like, you, what better entertainment is that? That's, right. that's him doing his job. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I, I, I'm curious. We've been sharing a lot of the uh, the positive side, you know, places mm. your your father loved your stories. I'm, I want to kind of flip that a little bit. Did your dad have any promoters, territories, anywhere he he hated working or that was bad? Like, you know, any bad stories on the other side of it? Um, a lot of times he got ripped off. I mean, I I, I couldn't tell you which promoter did it. Uh, I knew that. Um, you know, when he worked for uh, Gene Kaniski, uh, there was some a bit of a kerfuffle or, or you know, a misunderstanding um, when he was leaving the territory, and um, you know, he was shorted, and you know, that really hurt him because he worked for that money. Right. And, you know, the, a lot of promoters would do that when the guys were leaving. Sorry, yeah. you know, I'll mail it. I'll mail it to you. There's there's that name again, Benny. We've been doing this for a little over a year now. How many uh, road stories has so has that name come up? Absolutely, <laughs> too many. I'm not far off. It's <laughs> no, no, not not in the slightest. And it's sad that everybody from the territory days that we've had on or family members we've spoken to, they always have that one story. And it's sadly, it's usually the same three or four names that keep popping up, but they always have that one story of not getting paid. And that's, mm-hmm. you know, that's a shame. And, uh, Vince McMahon senior was the other that uh, didn't pay. Um, so uh, when my father passed away in 1999, Vince McMahon called my mother. I don't know how he got her phone number, but he did. Uh, the day after my dad passed, um, he phoned his condolences. And my mother was a really, um, uh, tough woman is, is the best way to describe her. <laughs> She didn't put up with any nonsense. And um, she uh, basically told Vince, thank you for the condolences. Um, your father owes my husband $1,000. And he sent her a check. Wow. Wow. Good for him. 
So, you know, that was good on him. You know, he, he even, cause that really annoyed my father over the years. You know, he said, I traveled all the way to New York, did all that work. Cause he worked, I think a couple of weeks and he got a little bit of the money and then didn't get the rest. And, you know, it's just the way the business goes, you know, and I, I do remember him leaving and, you know, really upset that, you know, a promoter would, um, you know, say, I'll mail it to you. And, and my dad would say, I need it now because we didn't, he didn't make the money like they do nowadays. Mm-hmm. It was pretty feast or famine in that business. The, the, I'm an accountant by trade, not, so I'm a numbers guy. And that's mm-hmm. always been something like, you know, when I think about the old school, the territory wrestlers, um, like your dad, you know, from week to week, it's not like I, mean, I do a budget because I, I, I know every two weeks I know exactly how much money I'm going to have because, you know, mm-hmm. I, I have an, uh, you know, an eight to five job. But how how like how hard it had to be for somebody like your dad to plan to do anything because you don't know. I mean, number one, you don't know what you're going to get paid because you don't know what the, the, the houses are going to be. Uh, and, and then you don't know if you're going to have a promoter who's going to stiff you. You know, I wrote something on on our Facebook page called Tribute to an old, old School Wrestlers. And I don't think these guys get enough credit because, you know, they went from town to town. I mean, they wrestled. They might have had to, you know, take a quick shower at the arena, hop in a car, drive five or six hours overnight. You know, they might have had a broken finger or a sprained ankle or a, a cracked rib or, a, you know, a, a fever. And they, they didn't have the luxury. They don't they didn't have PTO. They, they couldn't call out. I mean, not only did was their employer, uh, you know, the, the promoter, depending on them, but so is their family. And I don't think I don't think they get enough credit for everything that they did. I totally agree. You know, Dad uh, really um, had a hard to. You know, he he had some injuries through the years, and you know, as you know, no benefits and moving from territory to territory. We're Canadian, living in the U.S. Uh, my mother couldn't work. Um, so it was based on my dad's income solely alone. And he used to have a book and he would write in the book, you know, um, his, like you said, the budgeting and, you know, make it to make hands meet. That's, uh, that's all we, he could do, you know, and, uh, you know, it'd be really difficult, um, to try and, you know, forecast where, going here. Is this going to be okay? Like, uh, what about my family? You know, are they going to settle all right? Well, we were so used to it by then, but you know, you go where the money is and you know, where the, the heat is and, and he, he would get there and, you know, like, uh, Jimmy Ballant, you know, we'd be there two, three months and have to go again. It didn't work out or, you know, the gimmick only lasts so long, you know, and then people get tired of it, and that's when it's time to go. And moving is not the most pleasant thing in the world. We has, should have had investment in U-Haul trailers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we always had a U-Haul trailer, and, a, and we always drove a very nice car. And that was another thing. You know, even though we were living in motels, hotels, and rentals, um, we drove like a, a Lincoln Continental. Because a lot of the wrestlers did, because that's the image you project, the car you drive, and you know. You probably yeah, also wanted yeah, something like, to very dependable to get you from uh, from town to town oh, if you're, you know, in Stampede yeah. or Bill Watts territory. Absolutely, yeah, Bill Watts territory was tough on him too. Yeah, lot of lot of miles on the car. 
mm-hmm. and, and dealing with other guys at the same time and not paying trans and all that fun stuff. Guys saying they're broke, but you know they're not looking for a ride and, you know, my dad would give it. He was kind like that. And he liked to look after the other guys, you know, especially the young ones who were green and the older guys would make fun of them and rib them. Um, dad would do a few ribs here and there with it, with the guys, but the younger guys, he saw them coming in as potential and to carry the wrestling through to the next generation. Uh, what how's how he thought at the time. And, um, you know, he just was a kind person that way. We talked a lot about the changes, you know, the, how different the territories were and, and things today. You know, uh, unfortunately, obviously, as as you touched on, you know, your, your father did leave us way too soon. I, I mm-hmm. was hoping he put you in his shoes for a minute. If he if your father had had been around today, what do you think he would think of the current wrestling product? Well, before he passed, um, uh, he watched it uh, up until he passed away. Uh, I mean, and he was absolutely disgusted at the product at that time. Um, If he saw it today, he'd be even more disgusted. Um, The art of what he helped build is gone the art of kayfabe, the art of uh, the actual wrestling. Like he was even saying back then, look at these guys. They don't even know how to wrestle. It's all show and boobs and, you know, sex. And that made him angry. And so ironic that, I mean, these guys are making huge amounts of money for like really not, you know, it's a stunt show now where your dad actually, you know, it, it was real back then. And your dad had a drive from town to town. I mean, there's no no planes. I mean, he was getting in the car, wrestling sick, and you know, sometimes not making very much money. Yeah, he get again, you know, dodgy promoters. You know, uh, the long hauls in the car after being in the ring. You know, you got to go to the. It, it's you know, he did consistent training every day wherever he was whether it be in his hotel room or at the gym in our town where we were staying, um, consistently working out to keep his body in condition so he could actually do this and continue to do it. And um, along with that, you know, the complete utter exhaustion when he came off the road. He'd be like out for two days, easy, especially coming back from Japan. That was grueling for him. Uh, he went to Japan, I think, six times. And each time he came back, he would sleep for like a week. Mm. Hard, hard work. Different um, crowd of people there. Different. Um, he loved the culture, um, but just tra- a lot of traveling and exhaustion. Do you think if he could have done it all, you know, lived his life over again? Do you think he would have lived it the same way? Do you think he would have became a professional wrestler? I 100% believe he would. He was in love and made it part of his, uh, with wrestling and made it his life. And we got to go along for the ride. Um, He still gave us all the love in the world. Um, You know, he was absent a lot. Uh, Even when we were traveling, he'd be off 
four or five nights in, you know, Oklahoma or wherever. Um, you know, um, that was the hard part. But I, I think he would do it, but smarter. I think he'd be a lot smarter about how he would have went about it. And I really um, believe that he would have gotten over a lot better than he did, especially in New York. I can only imagine in the winter driving from, like, say, Calgary to Saskatchewan, and it's got to be like 40 below zero. I, I can't even Absolutely. imagine that. Like, that, that's that's crazy. But that's, that's what they did. did. You, yeah. Car, cars sure cars did. back then didn't exactly have the best insulation and heat like some of the nicer ones today. Yeah, that's old school, eh? Like, they were driving in an old, you know, and probably an old car at that time. And, you know, I could see my dad and John Quinn hopping in the car and driving all night, you know, and then finding a local gym and, you know, getting some to eat, maybe sleep in the car for a bit and get to the matches. But, you know, I think the flip side of that, though, is that and because I've read lots of wrestling books and the the camaraderie amongst the guys back then was incredible. I mean, you literally, I mean, we, we had Davey O'Hannon on a, a couple of weeks ago and, you know, you're spending more time in a car with a, a couple of these guys, two or three of these guys, than you do with your own family. So, I mean, you're really going to get close to these guys. And I think that's something that is gone with the territory days. I think now these guys, I mean, you know, they're, they're, they're flying back and forth and I don't think you're going to see that same camaraderie because they all kind of go their separate ways. I agree. Um, that is was part of the whole magic of it. You know, even though it was grueling and hard, you know, they have it so easy nowadays and they're, they don't have that camaraderie amongst themselves, you know, like they did back then with all the hours they spent together and, you know, talked about their families and missed their families. I can remember my dad coming home and saying, you know, so-and-so is, you know, really missing his kids. And, um, you know, we were one of the only families that really traveled together. So uh, just a little story uh, in Baton Rouge, I um, was about 11 at the time. And uh, Paul Orndorff was staying in the motor home where motor in we were staying at. And he also had a daughter my age. And he saw me in the parking lot. And um, by the way I walked, he could tell I was Kurt's daughter. He said what he said to my dad, and uh, he said, uh, you know what, I would, could I take your daughter for a Coke? And it wasn't anything, you know, unusual. It wasn't a creepy feeling, you know, or anything like that, And because uh, he was missing his daughter. And, you know, I sat with Paul, and we had the most beautiful conversation. I'll never forget it as long as I live. Um, he just asked, he didn't talk one word about wrestling, didn't, you know, nothing. All he wanted to know is how I was doing in school and, you know, what's it like living in Canada and, you know, what was it like living in Canada? Cause we were in Baton Rouge at the time. And then he was telling me all about his daughter and he went to my dad after and thanked him immensely for making him feel better. Cause he was just having a really bad day. And, and this is one of the most intense heels of all time, Paul Orndorff. So it's yeah. nice to hear something like that. He was a wonderful man. You know, he, he had the same as my dad, very soft-spoken, nice guy. And, uh, you know, in the ring, he was a different person. And for me to give him uh, that, 
um, and relieve him for a while and, you know, be with a kid and remind him of his family for a few minutes, I, I was happy to do it. Yeah, I, I, Paige, I can't uh, thank you enough for, for sharing some of these stories. I know it, I can't imagine some of them were, were as easy to tell as others. So again, we appreciate your time and there's so much more we could touch on as oh, we wrap up. Of course. I want to give you the, I want to give you the final thought. Uh, obviously, I mean, Benny and I both, uh, we've written on wrestling, studied it, you know, uh, pretty, I guess you, you classify us as historians on it. I mean, your, your father yeah, has it. just a, uh, such a unique reputation and and obviously he's beloved many people who knew and were fans of his work, especially his ability to be a good heel, which was just really a different skill set. But aside from the wrestling or maybe part of it, as as we wrap up, I want to give you the final thought. How how would you want history to remember your father? How I'd like him to be remembered as being a one of the best wrestlers that ever came out of Hamilton, Ontario. And the most underrated. He held 23 belts. Yeah, and, and like I said, uh, I mean, you... you 23 look times, at his, sorry. You look at his... I mean, one of the other people that I didn't even mention, I said, you know, Billy Robinson, Bobo Brazil, the two Samoans, you know, throw in Carlos Colon. Who yeah. is a, another legend? He's just you know Anoki Baba, you name it. And I I didn't even get through the whole list. I'm John Tolos, uh, yeah. who's another uh, epic heel wrestler. Another Hamiltonian, yeah. Yeah, right, exactly. But yeah, I, I think I think your dad will very very well respected and you know a bit underrated, but very accomplished. It is like he. It's just a, I, I and that's the thing. I want him to be uh, his his record to be. I, I, you know, I, I know people remember him. I, I, you know, they, I know they know his name, but I don't think he gets the recognition that he deserves for the amount of work he did and what he did for the wrestling world. Well, here's, here's the start. Now we, now we're going to get him out there. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, to, to even be in that echelon. I'm sorry to, to trip over my words there for a second. Hmm. You, you said you want to be remembered as one of the best wrestlers. I mean, you said it yourself over a hundred and we could sit here and talk till tomorrow about the talent yeah. that's come out of that region of Canada. And yeah. you cannot, it, you cannot argue that your dad, your dad does not belong at the top of that list for the work he did. I mean, to to be like Benny said, it's 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 a who's who of Hall of Famers that your dad kept up with. It's not he wasn't the guy who beat the guy. He wasn't the the guy who wrestled with the with the main event attraction. You had dozens of championships, dozens of title matches across everywhere. And and like Benny said, when you have people like the the Hearts and and the Sheik putting gold on your father and pushing him out there, those guys didn't put anybody front and center that couldn't carry a brand. And I think that's a huge testament. I totally agree. 
he had some wonderful opportunities in this business and, um, you know, highs and lows, um, definitely big pushes from Hart and um, the Sheik, Stu Hart and the Sheik. Um, and to top it off, he was trained very well and, you know, put his heart and soul into it and believed in it. And um, it was his passion. That's all he wanted to do and be good at it. And he was. Absolutely. And I couldn't, I couldn't be more prouder as a daughter of having him um, make that difference in the world, you know? Well, again, I, I thank you so much for your time. Uh, the family, the first person being there, being on the road, hearing the stories. It, it's, I, I appreciate you sharing them with us. Cause that's, such a uh, such a cool perspective that you you oftentimes don't get from even the even the the, the books and, and some of the biographies. I told you know what that's funny. Um, Vance Nevada, who did the uh, I did an article for Cauliflower Alley um, for the last edition they had out, and uh, told that side of wrestling that people don't really realize, you know, that all these gent men and women have families. Um, behind the scenes who love their fathers and mothers and, you know, um, but that's not what they were supposed to know. They were supposed to see that person who's making them mad, you know, Mm -hmm. but yeah, it's, uh, it's quite a business and uh, it's affected my life in good and, and some bad, I mean, there are some dark things, you know, that happened during those times too. I mean, that's inevitable in a, uh, a very fast-paced um, upheaval of the life we had. Yeah, I, I can I can only imagine. Mm-hmm. And things, like you said, things have certainly changed. I mean, you you have a perspective oh that no no other wrestling family, no spouses, no children are going to go through what you went through. Not 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 anymore. Not today. Never again. No. And I do talk to other children of wrestlers. I know what they've been through. Um, we can all relate. Um, it's not an easy business for a f- um, um, to have a family and do this at the same time. And my dad loved us so much. That's why we went with him. He couldn't bear being away from us for more than a few days. You know, when we were younger, you know, I mean, four and five years old. Right. Well, uh, Paige, again, I can't thank you enough for your time. Benny, before we say goodnight, uh, do you have any final thoughts? I'm just still stuck on it. Did you say 17 times in 10 years that you moved? That is correct. Wow. <laughs> yeah. You imagine my school report, trying to put my school record together. It's like a puzzle. And you're, <laughs> you're not talking about, like, buying a new house down the street. No. You know? Oh, no, we... No, we have we didn't uh, we we lived in motels, hotels, and rentals. Jeez, yeah, crazy. And, and you know the 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 sacrifice at home for 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 the hero on the road. That's that's incredible. Paige, thank you so much again. I, I for for your time, for your stories. Um, and again, uh, like I said at the beginning, we reached out to you, uh, your involvement in the, the page, uh, the Dan and Benny Facebook page. I, I appreciate you interacting and, and your comments. It's you're active and I appreciate that. And it's neat to get that perspective on some of the conversations we have. 
It has been absolutely my pleasure. It's my favorite subject to talk about, and I am glad to contribute to your page. I think it's wonderful. And a shout out to Jimmy Valiant, by the way. And uh, he's a wonderful man. I'm planning on seeing him. I'm going to take a trip down to Virginia and see him at some point. Him and his lovely wife, Angel. And uh, you know, um, he knows they are lovely people. I've spoken to him several times. He's just a lovely, lovely man, and has the highest respect for my father. So uh, we have lots to talk about when we meet up. So. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. But thank you. It's been my pleasure, gentlemen. Absolutely. Yes, ma'am. Thank you so much. You have yourself a good evening. You too. Thank you both very much. Good night, Take babe. care. Okay. Bye bye. I said it at the top of the hour, Benny. I love the third person interviews because they give you that perspective you can't get from a biography, even an autobiography. I mean, he couldn't tell the stories like she could from from her perspective and things she's heard and people you know the little side details she saw the man behind behind them for lack of a better term the man behind the makeup the man behind the mask the man behind the gimmick and it's it's so cool to hear that that narrative it's just you know you got the on the one hand you have kurt von hess out there traveling you know busting his butt trying to make a living for his family but it's so nice to hear the other side of it you know, the the child, the child's at home. I mean, the child looked forward, you know, Paige looked forward to when, when dad came home. Dad loved his family. You don't really hear that stuff. And I love hearing about stuff like that. Yeah, and, and she said it. I mean, that the front door opened, and he was Kurt Von Hess. And when he was in the house, he was Bill Terry. And just to be able to flip that switch for for your family and friends, bounce back and forth, it's, it's a testament to, like she said, how much he cared. Because, I mean, we... we we've talked about it on the show uh, with um, Dusty Rhodes wearing the neck brace around the house. Cause he wanted his kids to think it was real. You know, he, 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 it really had how Kurt kind of kept them to close to the chest, but also kept them protected from the darkness that came with that world. I'll never forget. I listened to, uh, I think it was Barbara Goodish talking about Bruiser Brody. Mm. And she said that when he was in the car on the way to the airport, he was Frank Goodish. The minute he walked through that airport door, he was Bruiser Brody. He just, yep. they can flip that switch. It's amazing. Yeah, that's why I love the uh, the chance I had to talk to Karen McDaniel, Wahoo, Wahoo McDaniel's wife, and how he was, it was the, it was almost the exact opposite with him. The guy you saw on TV was, was it. There was no gimmick there. He was, he <laughs> was the, the tough, right, the, 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 the chest chopping, tough fighting guy regardless of where you were, you know, but it's good stuff. Uh, as we wrap up for the night, Benny, find any final thoughts? No, I just, that was very enjoyable. I knew it was going to be, um, it definitely lived up to the hype in my mind, at least it, it just, I love hearing stories like that. Yeah. And that's, that's why I love the, 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 the one-on-ones you get those kind of stories, you hear them and that's what we're all about. And we continue uh, she said she loves the page. We, we love the page. It continues to grow. Page um, loves the page. <laughs> exactly. Outward. Like I always say, outward and upward and uh, plenty more to come. We're still having fun with this. Our, our first show here in February. So we, we move on uh, rest of the year. We keep them coming. Keep them having fun. Right, Benny? Absolutely. All right. Well, for the BS Express himself, Benny Scala, I'm Dan Sebastian. Have a good night, everyone. And we will see you next time we're in the ring. Good night. Keep warm.